So as I told uh, Sunday school this morning, this is the third week in a row I've had printer problems. And my attempt to avoid being messed over by technology, I'm being forced to use technology. So um, last week, all the papers came out of order. The week before that, uh, there was nothing. This week, we ran out, of, got a new printer, and it's already out of ink for some reason. So it's awesome. All right. We're just going to jump right in today. Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 14. Do all things without grumbling or questioning, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God, without blemish, without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you should also... You also should be glad and rejoice with me. Let's pray. Father, thank you for gathering this group of saints in Christ to yourself this morning. Thank you for uniting us as a church in purpose, for putting it in our hearts to follow you and to walk with one another. Thank you for the many hands willing to serve each other each week as we gather for worship, to set up, to tear down, to make things run smoothly, to make them beautiful. Thank you for the childcare workers and teachers who love our kids and are helping us raise them up in the fear and admonition of you. This morning, we pray for Heather as she uh, approaches the birth of the, uh, her and Matthew's new baby. Pray that he would come soon and that you would be with them and give them strength and keep them healthy and safe. Pray for the Abrams as they're homesick yet again and frustrated and impatient. Pray that you would heal them and that you would give them faith to endure the trials that you bring to them. We pray, Father, this week especially that you would overturn Roe v. Wade and that by that action you'd save the lives of many children. Forgive us for being a people who've tolerated such wickedness for so long. We pray that as we go into the Christmas season that you give us faith that you'd help us to be proactive in our love for our families and our love for the lost, that we take every opportunity you present for us to share the good news of Jesus. And we pray this morning as we come to your word, that you give me faith and power by your Holy Spirit, that you'd work to change each and every one of us here. Forgive us for our grumbling and our complaining and our questioning. Help us to be blameless and innocent without blemish. Help us to shine as lights in a dark world. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay. All right. As we begin this morning, I want to step back and evaluate where we're at as a church versus where the Philippian church is when they read this letter. Okay. Because uh, remember, I said that in a lot of ways, we're aspiring to the church at Philippi, right? This is a church 10 years down the road when the letter comes and a church that has been discipled by the Apostle Paul himself, and by Timothy. Okay, so this is a, to say we're going to aspire to the church at Philippi is a tall order. It's a big deal. And we're a young church, and we're growing, and we're growing in breadth, and we're growing in depth, but we're vulnerable because we're young. Uh, not necessarily to the kind of intense outward persecution that the church of Philippi endured, right? 
Paul was thrown into prison early on, that sort of thing. That kind of threat isn't real and intense and immediate, at least not yet, Uh, but we're vulnerable just the same. Most of the churches that the apostle Paul planted were very vulnerable and we read in his letters to them all the ways that they were attacked and divided and bought into false doctrine and all kinds of things like that. Paul wrote 1 Corinthians. When he did that, that church was about two or three years old. And what did we find? We've talked about this some in our Sunday school class. You know that when he wrote that letter, there was a man in that church, that two or three year old church, who was sleeping with his father's wife. Horrible sins going on inside these churches. There was division in that church. There were all kinds of problems. The Galatian church after Paul, oh no, this is so bad. Yeah, blast you technology. That's exactly right. The Galatian church bought into a cult of circumcision after the apostle Paul left. Okay. They were vulnerable, susceptible. New churches are always vulnerable and susceptible, especially to division and all kinds of things. And we're young and we're vulnerable and susceptible. And this is a passage about unity. It's a passage about unity for a mature church of 10 years. Okay. It's about unity of mind, unity of love, the kinds of things that we could have a part in now, but also the kind of things that we need to be aimed at growing in over time. And it can be frustrating to look at what we see here and say, well, well, I want that. I want it on the level that they had it. The intimacy that we talked about in the earlier chapter of, uh, in the first chapter of Philippians, I want that now. But that's a product of a lot of work over a lot of time. A lot of growth together, a lot of suffering together. And I think that being young as a church, what happens is when God saves people, there come times when we're tempted to forget what God has done and only see what we don't have. Fixate on what is missing. And in my experience, it doesn't matter how amazing or miraculous it is that what God has done. There's always something to fixate on, right? Our kids were learning in children's church not long ago about the exodus from Egypt. Y'all know the story, right? The people of God are held in slavery in Egypt under Pharaoh for 400 years. Pharaoh is the great serpent king of the world. And it's not an accident that that's how it works metaphorically. He literally wore a headdress that made him look like a cobra and had a crown that had a little snake popping out of it. He's the snake king. God's people are held captive under the snake king. It's something that God wrote into history. It matters. It's called typology. God crushes the snake king's head in miraculous fashion, right? Moses rises up, comes to Pharaoh and says, let my people go. And Pharaoh says, no. And then 10 plagues, each of them worse than the one before, culminating in the death of the firstborn sons of Egypt. And Pharaoh finally says, okay, fine. And then they leave after plundering Egypt. And what happens? They chase them. That's right. Pharaoh chases them. The snake king comes after God's people. God opens the waters of the Red Sea. 
God's people pass through the waters. And then when the snake king comes after them, what happens? The waters close. The horse and rider, he's thrown into the sea. It's a picture of baptism, actually. So is the flood. Water in the Bible is always associated with judgment. God's people pass through the waters of judgment. Paul talks about, Paul and Peter have my back on this. This is not me making things up and drawing conclusions, okay? 1 Corinthians 10, 1 to 2. I want you to know, brothers, our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, okay? 1 Peter 3, 20 to 21. Noah and the flood. Peter talking about it. God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience. Ten plagues, they pass through the sea, sing unto the Lord, for he is triumphed gloriously. The horse and rider, he is thrown into the sea. The song of Moses. They're guided by a uh, cloud by day and a fiery pillar by night. They start to pass through the wilderness and immediately what happens? What do they do? They grumble and complain. They grumble and complain. Exodus 16, 2. The whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you've brought us into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Plagues, Red Sea, fiery pillar. Obviously, God brought us out here to die, right? They complain. They complain about water. They complain (laughs) about food. So God sends them manna, bread from heaven. And from then on, it's just a cycle of grumbling and complaining and forgetting what God has done. Bread from heaven every morning to eat. Complain about the water. They complain about the manna. They come to Mount Sinai. The mountains on fire with the glory of the Lord and covered in thick clouds and darkness. God himself speaks to them. Moses goes up on the mountain to get the law of God. When he takes a little too long for their patience, they gather their gold. They make a golden calf. They engage in pagan worship. It wasn't just the people. It was Moses too. Moses grew weary. Moses got frustrated. Moses got impatient. Moses grumbled and complained and questioned. Moses struck the rock. This is just what God's people do over and over and over again, from the Old Testament to the New. That was already what was going on in the church at Corinth. That's why Paul talked about this exact story, which I've already quoted from him beginning to talk about it. This is the whole passage. I want you to know, brothers, our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink, right? He's making a parallel. They were baptized. They took the Lord's Supper in a form, in a fashion, in a type, right? They drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now, these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction 
on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Intense, right? It's intense. There's another more intense warning than that. Based on this same story of Israel in the wilderness, Hebrews chapter three and four. I'm not going to read it because it's too long. You should go read it. What's the point? The point is attacks come, temptation comes. That's why the apostle Paul was warning the church here at Philippi. Although you're 10 years old, although you're mature, although that you're growing in the faith, fight, fight, fight. That you be of the same mind and have the same love. Fight for it. Attacks come, temptation comes. Our church is young. I want us to pay attention to these things as we're young so that we're on guard from the beginning on all fronts, especially on the front of our own hearts. We're not exempt. We want things easy. God was at work, plagues, clouds, fire, sea, manna, water from the rock. We see things like that in the Bible and we say, man, what idiots, right? Like, can you believe how quickly they forgot? Morons. If I had been there, I would never have forgotten. If I had been there, if I had seen what they had seen, someone greater than Moses has come. He's done greater things than Moses or any of the prophets, including rise from the dead. And he's established his church and he's transformed the world. Europe before Jesus was a wasteland of tribal barbarism. All around us is evidence of what Jesus has done. And then there's what he's done in our lives, in your life, in my life, There's what you once were, and there's what you are now. There's what your wife or husband once was, and what he is now, what she is now. This is God at work in you, to will and to work for his own good pleasure, as we talked about last week. As the poet put it, we spend our days walking through a garden of a thousand burning bushes, looking to heaven for science, always tempted to grumble and to complain not just about things we don't have that we want or that we're afraid about, like the Israelites. Being in the desert and being afraid of not having enough food and water, actually kind of reasonable compared to some of the things that we doubt and complain and grumble about, right? We'll grumble and complain about the good gifts that God has given us, not being good enough. What of God's gifts do you complain about? Where has God blessed you? that you find cause to take issue with God? Your husband, your wife, it's true, they're sinners. Do you deserve better? Doesn't matter what it is, house, job, family, husband, wife, kids, parents, school, we have good things, but we'll find a way to convince ourselves that God is out to get us, that he's brought us out into the wilderness to destroy us. He did it all just to get to get us out alone in the wilderness, to kill us because he actually hates us. We'll convince ourselves of that. So we'd better build the golden calf. We'd better rise up and play. We'd better give in to our lusts and our idolatry. 
our gluttony, our drunkenness, our self-indulgence. Better turn from God before he blesses us anymore and actually gets us to the promised land. I heard there are giants there. Scary. Maybe he didn't bring us out into the wilderness to kill us by starvation. Maybe he brought us to the promised land so that we can be killed by giants. This is how we think. It's the pattern. No gratitude, no patience, no contentment. No willingness to accept the consequences of our sins. You ever sin in a big way and taste some of the consequences? Led you to repentance? And then you went out of those consequences quick, don't you? You expect, well, I, got, I learned the lesson. Now it's over, right? And the consequences keep coming. Consequences of your actions keep following you. There are no magic quick fixes for years of rebellion or unfaithfulness or even weakness. We become ungrateful and impatient. And the reality is, it's just that God isn't done dealing with us yet, purifying us and sanctifying us and making us like Jesus. Yet we grumble and complain and question and are angry. Why can't God fix everything around me to make my life easier? A bad way to think, isn't it? It's not about our lives being easier. It's about growing in godliness and working out our salvation with fear and trembling, learning what it means to be blameless and innocent and without blemish. And there are some things that are just fundamental, elemental, and are therefore uphill. They go all the way back to the Garden of Eden. There are the curses. God curses men with futile labor and women with painful labor of two very different types, right? It's like we're made for this, but it's painful. We have to lean into that. We have to embrace the goodness while growing from the difficulty and the pain. It's a curse, but it's a blessing in disguise because it humbles us and it reminds us of our sin. It drives us to depend on Jesus. The same is true of our grumbling and complaining, actually, and our tendency to that. What was the root cause of the fall? What's the fundamental sin of men? Romans 1 puts it like, like this. It's not about Adam and Eve specifically, but it's kind of about Adam and Eve. It's about us. It's the pattern. Although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. That's it. They didn't honor him as God or give thanks to him. So what happened? They became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Well, what happened in the garden? The serpent stirred Eve, stirred Eve up to doubt God's love and goodness to her. Stirred Eve up to grumble and to question. Did God really say you can't eat of any tree of the garden? What's he holding back from you? What's he keeping from you? What good thing do you deserve should he give to you? that you don't have. Start grumbling a little in your heart, Eve. I know what he's holding back from you. It's wisdom. He doesn't want you to be wise. He doesn't want you to be like him. Eve's deceived. She takes up the grumbling of the serpent. She questions God. She questions his goodness. She questions his love. And therefore, because she questions his love and goodness to her, she questions the command and the goodness of the command. And she rebels and Adam follows her lead. And together they worship at the feet of the snake. They hand the snake the crowns that God gave to them as king and queen over all of creation. So the whole Christian life really does come down to this. 
do all things without grumbling or questioning. The word there for questioning is tricky. One translation says complaining, another says disputing. And I think disputing is a little bit more the sense of the word. Without contesting God, without disputing with God, without arguing with God, without disputing the goodness and justice of his very good commands. In other words, be grateful and trusting. You have a father who loves you, cares for you. So stop and take stock this morning. What has God given you? What has God not given you? What is it that you complain and grumble about? Where do you question his goodness and love to you? What are you impatient for? What are you discontent about? How might those things pose a risk to the peace and unity of your home or this church? This is going to sound really stupid. Can you believe I am tempted to grumble and complain about the fact that our church is not already 10 years old? It's true. It's stupid. It's really dumb. Depending on how you time it, our church is how old? If you time it with Bible study starting a little over a year, I think at this time last year, uh, we had my family and the Solsers and Cynthia and May Ray, who's not here this morning, and Matt and Mary Ruth, and Bart and Andrea. And I think that was about it. If we time it with our first service, it gets about half of us. And that's about, what, six months ago, eight months ago? It's crazy, crazy, right? Think of how sweet this church already is. How generous, committed to each other responsive to God's word. I mean, a couple weeks ago, we were talking about the fellowship that the uh, Philippian church had in chapter one. And it's like, guys, we're young. We need to do the work, right? And then like within a week, I hear of like all of these, everybody's having everybody over into each other's house and doing the things. It's, it's so sweet. So responsive to God's word, so beautiful. Some of you gathered together to celebrate Thanksgiving together. LaCroix, all their family on the West Coast had a full house of people. Sweet. Giving, serving, generous. Look what God has done and is doing. Some of us were far from the Lord. Others were looking for something more from church, fellowship and community and accountability and truth and theology and pastoral care. And we hope this church will be and will become all of those things. By God's grace, it is. By God's grace, it will. The Philippian church, this was 10 years out. I want it now. I want more. I'm ungrateful. I'm impatient. I want more for us. I step back and it's amazing. But I'm tempted to grumble and complain at how much, what? How much I have to depend on God for his work in me and in us how much I want our homes to be happier, our marriages to improve, our walks, our kids to walk with Jesus. It all feels uphill. That's the way dealing with sin feels. I'm a jerk, if you don't know it. I complain about everything. I want everything to be easy. I want to reap the fruit of 10 years of labor without doing the labor, without taking the risk, without sowing the seeds, without watering. That is destructive. It's destructive in our homes, in our marriages. 
in our relationships. It's destructive in churches. It's why so many churches go off the rails and go astray. You want easy answers without the hard work. You want easy solutions without the hard work. You want the appearance of fruit without real fruit. You want it fast and easy. You take shortcuts. You heal God's people lightly. It's a fight. Okay. That's me. How about you? How's your relationship with your heavenly father? What do you grumble about? You know he loves you, right? Right? There's a reason that Paul moves from grumbling and questioning to telling us what we should be and why it matters. That you may be blameless and innocent, children of God, without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life. He frames it all in terms of our identity in Christ, in terms of our relationship to our Father in heaven, that we may be his children, blameless, innocent, without blemish, living in an ungrateful and rebellious world. As Romans put it, not acknowledging God and giving him thanks, right? That's the world we live in. You know your father loves you, right? Right? God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 5.8. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? You know that your father in heaven loves you, right? Romans 8, 31 to 32. He didn't spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. So what are you ungrateful for? What are you angry about? What are you tempted to doubt about God's goodness? How's your career, your job, your financial situation? How's your marriage? Sin drives wedges. Grumbling and questioning drives wedges. It divides. That's why this is how Paul ends this big, long passage on unity. Grumbling and questioning divides. Be honest with yourself and with God, with your husband, with your wife. Stop focusing for a minute on the problems. Step back. Yeah, there are problems. Everybody got problems, right? Everybody has sins that are real, and that are deep, and compromises they've made with themselves and with each other. Welcome to marriage. Welcome to life. Zoom out for a minute. Does your husband love Jesus? Does your wife love Jesus? Are you for each other? Can you trust that? Can you trust that you're for each other? If your answer to those questions are yes, how much do you have to be grateful for? How few people have that to start with. You don't have to be best friends. You don't have to be always coming from the same place. If you're married to somebody who loves Jesus and you're for each other, really for each other and really love Jesus, you're going to make it. It's going to be okay. You have a lot to be grateful for. Kids, do your parents love Jesus? Do they love you? Are they for you? The world is full of fatherless and motherless people. You grow up in homes where God is not known and loved. How good do you have it? Do you have a job that allows you to provide for your family? Put a roof over your head and food on the table? Do you have more than you need in the freedom to be generous? 
Can we as a church meet together and worship? Do we love each other? Are we growing in our willingness and ability to hold each other accountable to honoring God? Yes. All yes. Do we stumble? Yes. As we come to love and actually like one another, does it get hard in different ways? Yeah, it gets hard in every way. As we build our relationships, more becomes at stake in speaking the truth to one another. It's all hard. But what happens when we live in unity? When we're humble like Jesus, who went into the wilderness for 40 days and was tempted and did not grumble or question? Who went into the garden, Gethsemane, and was tempted and did not grumble or question? Who was hung on the tree and still did not grumble or question? What happens when we follow his example is we are blameless and innocent. Children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom we shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life. You'll go into a jewelry shop to get an engagement ring. Your husband's done that, right? When they get the diamond, thanks for raising your hand, Nathan. Looks like you did it on purpose. Meredith. When they show you the diamonds, what do they do? Where do they put them? In their hands? What do they, what do they, what do they, how do they show them to you? In the light and what's behind them? Black, black velvet. Always black as night velvet. Why? You're not going to see the beauty of that diamond. You're not going to see every facet of it pop in the light unless it's held up on a black background, right? And then it sparkles and shines. It looks impressive. Even the worst diamonds look amazing. Stars in the sky, it's the same. That's what we're called to be. It's beautiful. In a world of grumbling and questioning, those who humbly embrace Jesus, those who give thanks to God, those who trust his love and goodness to us and all that he commands are like stars in a pitch black sky, diamonds on black velvet. All right, there's a little bit more left in this passage. We've touched on it. We touched on it last week. I'm just going to remind us really quickly, right? This bit about, so that in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain, even if I'm poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith. I'm glad and I rejoice with you all. Likewise, y'all should be glad and rejoice with me. We talked about that, right? All of this is like, he wants them to be sure. He, Sure. He wants them to be mature. Mature. Whether he's with them or not, whether he lives or he dies, right? He's a father to them. He wants to be proud of them when he stands before Jesus. It doesn't matter if he lives or dies. They're going to make it. So he rejoices and they should too. That's our aim. To be a church that's mature and strong. That doesn't depend on me or Ben, or a brand, or a logo, or a gimmick. But when hard times come, we stand firm together, being of the same mind and the same love. And that comes by cultivating gratitude, committing to not grumbling and complaining, but being humble like Jesus. All right, let's pray. Father, we are tempted to grumble all the time. We're tempted to complain and to want more and to want it easy, and to want it now. 
Sometimes what we want is sinful and sometimes what we want are good things that you've decided are not ours now. But we want to be godly. We want to be blameless and innocent. We want to be without blemish. We want to shine like lights in a lost and dying world. Would you give us the faith and the humility to set aside our grumbling and our complaining? Would you teach us the art of cultivating gratitude? Would you make us like Jesus, who deserved all honor and glory and who was born as a baby and lived and suffered and died on our behalf? Would you help us trust him and cling to his word? In Jesus' name, amen.